Snap Studios. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the name your price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Okay, so I want to just be real. I'm just going to put it out there, right? Because Snap, we like to pretend, you know, that we live in a separate universe, completely unaffected by the gravity well that is Ira Glass and This American Life. I'll be on interviews like, how dare you compare us to TAL? What's the meaning of this? But the truth is, None of this happens without that, right? Let's just be honest. And there is no bigger Ira Glass fan in all the world than me. For real. Which makes it ironic, the story I'm about to tell you right now. Because one day, I actually get a call from my hero, Ira Glass. And like normally, This American Life, they're busy trying something that at the time, no one had really done before. A simulcast filmed in New York to be broadcast to people and theaters in seats around the country, around the world, right? And Ira asked me to join him for this show, the biggest public radio storytelling show ever in New York. Now, first, I lose my mind, right? And then I go to New York City, the Skirball Theater, and there's David Sedaris who, for some reason, is wearing clown makeup. I I don't know why. And David Rakoff, the amazing, kind, generous David Rakoff, probably his final performance. Tig Notaro, Mike Birbiglia, storyteller heaven. Some of my people have flown in to witness the big event in person, family and friends watching back home, rooting me on, you know. And it's been crazy getting to this stage, crazy. But I've got a story I know it's going to kill, and I'm ready. If I remember correctly, Tignataro goes on before me. She's awesome, hilarious, amazing. And I don't know what Sedaris is doing. Kind of mumbles something, but he's David Sedaris. You know. I'm waiting in the back. And finally, it's my turn. Ira introduces me, and I walk out on stage. Look at this glorious audience, the lights, the cameras. And then I have no idea what it is I'm here to say. Not a clue. Something about being on a farm or something maybe. But what? What are my lines? Nothing. Nothing. I've got to bring it home. It's the Ivory Glass show. I got to do something. Say some words. Then it's over. Polite applause. I'm ushered backstage. And everyone's telling me, ah, great job. But I know, I know it was horrible. I know this. I know it. 
and I have to put on this brave face, go to the after party. And people either look away from me, like I've got the Rona, or they tell me, hey, you, you were fantastic. What a performance. No one will tell me the truth. I'm not talking about lay people. They're not supposed to know. I'm talking about my peers, other storytellers, comedians, poets, the people who truly understand how catastrophically I just bombed. They won't say it. And basically, in tears, I start talking to a producer at This American Life, Starly Kine. Starly, Starly, I suck. And she's like, yeah, you were horrible. And we both knocked back one of the free cocktails. Starly, it was so bad. Hey, I saw what you did up there. Now, I'll say this for you. If you're going to go down, at least go down big. <laughs> I stop another waiter holding the tray, grab some more drinks. Starly, I screwed up Ivory Glass's show. I'm the weak link. And Starly's like, hey, 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 listen to me. Listen to me. I promise you, whatever you did, Ivory Glass is going to be fine. You messed up. So don't mess up like that anymore. Drink more cocktails. Then Starley starts detailing a blow by blow, second by second, excruciating detail, exactly how horrible I really was on that stage. And by the end, I'm howling. We're both howling in laughter. And if you go on the This American Life website and look for the Invisible Made Visible live storytelling spectacular show, Ira has graciously cut me out. And for this, I'm grateful. And for Starly that night, I am grateful. I'm ever so grateful. I'm grateful despite bombing like nobody's bombed before. I'm grateful for second chances. I'm so grateful to you for listening. And so today, we present the Snap Stage Gratitude Special. My name is from Washington. Someday... May someone be as kind to you as Starly was to me when you're listening to Snap Judgment. Now, may I direct you to your VIP reservations for the best seat in the house because we begin and we begin hard with the guy who has never bombed ever. Master wordsmith, Shane Koizan, Snap Judgment, live. Now, this story does contain explicit language. Sensitive listeners are advised. I was raised by my grandparents. Now, the three things you need to know about my granddad are number one, and probably most important, he had an intense love for beef jerky. Two, he had the kind of temper that could be likened to a levee bursting apart on a hot, dry day. A cachet of anger stored away for any given moment on any given day. My grandmother used to say he was one half volcano and one half hurricane. A handful of excuses and a gut full of pain. And because of this, 
we come to number three. My granddad had a way with monsters. As a child, I slept in a bedroom full of them. A closet stuffed with long-legged demons who could make it from one end of the room to the other in a single step. My strep throat silence was born from night terrors. When screaming was not enough, so I instead kicked the wall. Through my first remembered breath, the moment I heard thunder storm down the hall, then burst through my door like a war on its way to a peace protest. My granddad would rest his hands on his hips, let his fingertips grip his boxers and lift them up past his waist. Standing like a superhero in the doorway, he would split the night with a whisper and say, All right, you I swear to Christ, I will turn on a damn light. Never has any monster ever heard a battle cry more terrifying than I will turn on a light. And every night for more than four years, my granddad took boogeymen by the ears and threw them out on their asses. Dragged the carcasses of dead monsters out of my room Grabbed a broom and swept what was left of my nightmares into a dustpan Emptied them into a trash can Then turned around to say Sweet dreams, my boy Be down the hall if you need me We were sidekicks I'd sound the alert And my granddad would put the hurt on whatever was hiding under my bed Or lurking in my closet he deposited his foot so deep into the asses of gargoyles that when they finally turned back into stone, he could wear them as platform boots to a KISS concert. My granddad used to wear a red polo shirt to bed. He said it used to be white. But one night when I was four, he busted down my bedroom door and had to kick some ass because I was screaming. Now he wears it as a warning, teaching nighttime there are some things far worse than morning. A night terror differs from a nightmare in that the dreamer will awake and take terror with them back into consciousness. Add to this the fact that the dreamer rarely recalls what they dreamt, and that any attempt to wake them usually ends unsuccessfully. I know this now. But think constantly how my granddad had to just stand there, wait for it to end, and believe everything was going to be okay. How the following day he'd pretend not to be tired. An alarm clock wired into fears I could not recall. He'd wake and thunder down the hall doing the very best he could. He'd be there. An anchor pulling me back from the somewhere I could not escape. As a child I learned not every hero wears a cape. Not everyone gets a ticker tape parade just for having patience. Not everyone has the strength needed to stand there, wait for it to end and believe everything's going to be okay. Not everyone has the courage to say or do nothing when a child is screaming, dreaming of eternity in a room with no doors, no floors to keep you from falling further into panic. Each one small fear suddenly titanic in its implications, situations so far beyond grotesque, I would have amputated my own imagination just to make them stop. But at the end of each one, he'd be there. And he'd say, close your eyes. 
I'm going to turn on a light. He'd invite me back to consciousness with a tired smile. The next day, he would sit on the sofa before dinner and say, I just need to rest my eyes. My quest to end night terrors was born from the night he ended up falling asleep at the wheel and driving full speed into a snowbank. My one-man think tank kicked into overdrive. And for five nights in a row, my granddad slept soundly. Free from worry, we watched the light return to his eyes as if it had just come back from some long vacation. But on night number six, the kicks against the bedroom wall made thunder storm down the hall once more. He stood in the doorway ready to wage war, ready to restore light to darkness, to dismiss shadows, to land heavy-handed blows, Muhammad Ali combos that would give monsters pause to reconsider the options. Get up or stay down. Stay down. That night, he was hungry for a first-round knockout. He was about to go through his usual checklist of monster hiding spots when I said, no, it's okay. Go back to bed. With renewed enthusiasm, he looked at me and said, nonsense. These have to pay. <laughs> and I remember the way he dropped to his knees, stuck his head under my bed and said, what the is all of my beef jerky doing under here? I explained to him my not-so-brilliant plan. I said, I thought if I kept them fed, they'd leave me alone and you could get a good night's sleep. Slow but deep, his lips crept across his face, then cracked open into laughter. After a childhood of expecting only anger, he laid down on the ground, his lungs kicking at his chest. Every suppressed joy suddenly brought to the surface... This is the first time I can recall hearing my granddad laugh. Some thoughts are kept in closets, hanging next to skeletons and boogeymen. Sometimes when we believe in monsters, they take up residence under our beds. Our heads fill with the dread needed to keep them fed. We tread our own fear because we somehow thought it was better off being kept secret. Which comes no surprise that some hearts are like dark bedrooms. Tombs that we allowed ourselves to shut because we thought that way, everything will be alright. I think about my granddad's laugh. I think often about that night. About how some people are waiting for people like us to slide our hands against their walls and say, close your eyes, I'm going to turn on a light. Canada's gift to the world, the almighty Shane Khoisan. Original music written by Alex Mandel, performed by the Snap Judgment players Alex Mandel, David Brandt, and Tim Frick. 
nothing but hits. The Snap Judgment lights, camera, action, gratitude special. And for our next story on the Snap stage, 15-year-old Noah St. John proves that age ain't nothing but a number. When my mamas fight, they go on long car rides, come back, and I hear our car stay still. They come in, and Robin goes directly to the bedroom, angry. Maria will sometimes make toast, pour water. I sit in my room, quiet, listening like a radio antenna. My mamas drive a CRV. They bought it brand new. The car is big-boned, practical. It is our car. I have been one with this CRV for so long now. We used to drive for miles out on the highway until I fell asleep. It has taken me to martial arts practice and school plays. This is the car that drove me to the gay pride parade, where I skipped through the crowd throwing mini Oreos. This is the car I'll learn to drive in, the car I'll remember. Last Tuesday night, my mother Maria comes into the house with a weathered smile. My other mother, Robin, and I are sitting in the room. Maria asks us if we'll take a drive with her. So we all get in the car, our hearts thudding in offbeat unison. And as we drive, silence settles in. And I wonder, and then I know, this is it. And I didn't imagine it would end like this. I didn't imagine an ending at all, but if they were going to tell me about the divorce, what a way to do it. I sit in the back seat. I wonder when they'll say it, how they'll say it. I think about how my time will be split between them. I wonder what'll happen when they see each other afterwards. Will it feel like collisions? I don't want to meet a new girlfriend. I can't imagine anything but this. Its ending is unthinkable. My heart hurts at the thought of our last miles. These miles. Who will take the CRV? In the back seat, I think about how lucky we were to have had this family. Their 20 years of marriage, my 15 with them. I remember when Maria drove away one night without saying where. I remember when I came to them crying at the idea of separation. I remember when Robin came out sobbing. I remember when Maria whispers at Robin to be quiet and Robin yells louder. I feel these walls crumbling. I don't want this life to end. Maria starts to talk. I pinch my leg and look out the window. She tells me that our car, our CRV, is just 13 miles away from reaching 100,000 miles now. I wonder if this is part of the divorce speech or just a distraction. I feel angry, they should just say it. She tells me the reason we took this ride is so that we could all be there 100,000 miles together as the people who matter in her life. Slowly, I come to the realization that this isn't a breakup ride this is a stay together ride we're in the car 
and we're driving on a Tuesday night and we're 99,987 miles in. We stop for onion rings and Sundays. Keep driving. 99,993 miles. Stevie Nicks. 99,996 miles. Elton John. When we get to 99,999 miles, we hold hands. Melissa Etheridge and sing Lucky at the top of our lungs. There are too many reasons that my mamas found love in each other's presence. There are too many moments when we are unbreakable. And in this moment, we are one family, constructing road as we go, burning bridges behind us, adding mileage like graceful aging, driving in our CRV towards moonlight. Stay right there, Snappers, because after the break, we experience mad love and go sit at the back of the bus. Stay tuned. Judgment. You're listening to our gratitude special, Snap Live Spectacular. And our next story deals with love. Because there's love and there is mad love. I'll let Joyce Lee take it from here. You're so vain. You probably think this poem is about. It is jive turkey, it is. The phone has rang five times in the last hour. I got 26 messages on my answering machine with you calling me crazy. I'm as sane as you'll let me be. (laughs) You knew when you met me in a crowded bar full of poets, I was as drunk as the Titanic, hollering cat calls at your ass like you were way across the room when you were less than two feet from me, what I was. (laughs) Sweetheart, I'm only as crazy as my love is. And my love checks your Facebook every single day. It looks at you out of the corner of my left eye when I got something on my mind, but I'm not gonna admit how much stalking got the thought there in the first place. My love has the most sincere smile, smothering sociopathic thoughts. And it's glad I'm wrapped in an intimidating package. That way I be checking the mother that be looking at you without having to utter one word. My love starts fights just because it wants you to grab me by my throat and dominate me, but I'm not going to ask because I'm too much of a lady. (laughs) My love is rubbing alcohol in your visine crazy when I think you got me twisted. 
It runs a straight razor across your chest when you're drunk and sleep so I can see your actual blood and sweat in this relationship when I miss it. It's an angel to your family. It's a rebel to mine. It's a straight jacket for your wondering eye to keep it in line from going crazy. The phone is ringing. Hey, I'm sitting here wearing your favorite t-shirt, soaking my feet in green jello, eating cheese puffs and watching Fraggle Rock. You know what, sweetie? Everything happens for a reason, for instance. I busted the windows out your car so you could get the air I assumed you were talking about when you said I was suffocating you. And no, sweetheart, I did not cut your brake lines to kill you. It's just that you take breaks your way, I take breaks mine. It's not my fault you failed to listen in between lines when someone you call crazy is speaking, I told you. The second day we were together, over vegetarian omelets and orange juice, don't hurt me. You said you wouldn't. You loved me for a time and then said you couldn't love anyone at any time. So who is that skinny bitch? <laughs> That's why she ain't got no windows on her car either. <laughs> hey, you brought her into our relationship. So if I'm unhappy, then all three of us are unhappy. And unhappy is not the same as crazy. Crazy would cry and pick up the phone and discuss the issue until I looked crazy. Crazy would express in great girly details about how heartbroken I am until I felt crazy while unhappy just tends to do some crazy things. (laughs) To remind your lion ass who it is you were dealing with in the first place, hello. I'm the same drunk you met in a crowded bar full of poets, enjoying driving your ass crazy. Snap favorite Joyce Lee, ladies and gentlemen. But I can't let Joyce have all the fun. That's right, this next story comes from yours truly. Snap Judgment, live. Okay, so. I was a young lad living in Detroit, Michigan. Join myself. My parents said, no, 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 no. We're taking y'all out to the country, middle of nowhere, gonna be farmers. I didn't appreciate it, but they bribed me. And as a little kid, I got a trapper keeper, you know, I had a Scooby-Doo lunchbox, yo. I had one of those hats with the propeller on top of it. I was ready to go on the first day of school. I said, go ahead, go on to school. And I went down the driveway to wait for the school bus. This was a new thing for me, school bus. So I was out there, and I saw it. Coming down the road, you could hear the kids screaming, hollering, and yelling, and shouting. School bus pulls up. Go on in here. I step in. And it goes silent. See, 
there weren't any black families in rural Michigan for about a hundred square miles. And no one had gotten the memo that wanted a ride. So I just went to go sit down in the first seat I saw. It's this little toe-headed boy. And he spit in the seat. I kept walking. Spit. Spit. And I'm getting near the end of the bus. Sit yourself down, Blaze. We got to go. Everyone's shouting. They're yelling now. You know what they're calling me. And I get... I get all the way to the back of the bus and I can't turn around. They're shouting, they're screaming, they're yelling. I can't turn around. There's a little girl. She has her backpack on the seat. She moves it. And I sit down. And we ride. I don't say a word to her. I don't say anything to her. We ride, go to school. The next day, the shouting, the screaming, the hollering, I go right back to the back of the bus. And Mary Jo, I know her name is Mary Jo now. Mary Jo moves her backpack, and I sit down. We do not speak. We just ride. And that's how it goes every single day until... The middle of the school year, they switch things up. And instead of being the last one on the bus, now I'm the first. But force of habit, I go right back to my regular seat. Now, in rural Michigan, nobody's rich, but some of us are really, really poor. Poor farm families where you don't have enough insulation on your, on your water makes your pipe freeze in the middle of the winter. But you still have to do your chores. You still have to clean the barn. You still have to get chicken filth all over you. And when that happens in a cold Michigan winter, you have one of two choices. You can either go to school covered in filth or you can try to hide it with some cologne. <laughs> this day, Mary Jo went the cologne route. And when she got on that bus, it smelled like a skunk wrapped in rotten flowers. And the kids screamed and shouted and hollered. And Mary Jo, she looked right back at me. I looked away. I'd had enough. I'd had enough. I was hoping she'd find, I just hoped she'd find somewhere else to sit. But she walked back. She walked back. The hollering, the screaming, the shouting, the yelling, she walked back. And there I was, with my backpack on the seat. I waited.
and I moved her. She sat down. And I was so ashamed. The hollering, the screaming, the shouting, I didn't care. I just wanted to tell her, I wanted to tell her I was sorry. So I said, hey, um, my name's Glenn. I know your name. What are you talking about? So we talked. Ada, screaming and hollering, it just went away. We talked to two little kids in the back of the bus. Music by Alex Mandel, performed by Alex Mandel, David Brandt, and Tim Frick. Do not touch that dial because when we return, the funniest snap story of all time, Jen Colbert, gonna bring the house down all the way down. What's her secret to ask? Girl Scout cookies. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Snap Judgment. My name is from Washington. You're listening to our Snap Gratitude special featuring some of our amazing Snap Live storytellers. Now, this story does contain explicit language. Sensitive listeners are advised. As a little girl, Jen Colbert discovered the allure of being a Girl Scout. I'll let Jen tell you why. When I was 10 years old, More than anything in the world, I wanted to be a Girl Scout. But you have to be 12 to be a Girl Scout. So I was a brownie. I didn't know such a thing existed. Imagine my fat kid delight when I found out I'd be gathering with other girls my age, also called brownies. This was the best that had ever happened to me. It was beautiful. And then one day, my mom announces she's gonna be our troop leader. The best thing that ever happened to me was about to be taken over by Stephanie. That's her name, Stephanie. And she ruins everything good. I was distraught. I didn't know what to do. And then a week later, Stephanie comes in and announces to the troop, we're going to be selling Girl Scout cookies. What? I didn't even know there were going to be cookies involved. It's now still the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. 
When I was a kid, there were only four kinds of Girl Scout cookies. Today, there are 17. Four. Four. There was the Lorna Dune cookie. Shortbread. Very plain, very simple. I don't know who Lorna Dune was, but the made a tasty cookie. Same shortbread cookie, covered in peanut butter, dunked in chocolate. Thank you, Jesus. Delicious. There is the thin mint. Which I think we can all agree should be eaten straight out of the freezer. Yes. What a lot of people don't realize is that that habit was actually created by a skinny Yeah. She bought a box of Thin Mint cookies and thought, oh my God, I'm never going to be able to eat all of these at once. What am I going to do? How will they stay fresh? And then her mom told her to put them in the freezer. And then her fat friend came over and said, don't you have anything to eat in this damn house? The skinny girl pulls cookie from the freezer. Fat girl eats them and is happy. You're welcome. That's how that happened. penultimate champion Girl Scout cookie of the world is the Samoa. It is a ring of shortbread cookie covered in caramel, toasted coconut, striped with fudge. It is to be put on your finger like a ring and eaten into a smaller ring. I like to put one on each finger and eat them in rapid succession. And then whichever finger first got another cookie. Now I don't know if you know this about Girl Scout cookies, But there is a release date. You don't just order the cookies and they show up. There's a day that all Girl Scout cookies cross the globe, I imagine, (laughs) are released all at the same time. I imagine there's one really old Girl Scout who just screams, release the cookies! Stephanie being our troop leader is really going to pay off. Because we had to hold on to the cookies until the release date. And my parents had an air-conditioned garage. My dad's a heart surgeon. 
So inside my garage, for 17 days, there were four flats of Girl Scout cookies. Stacked 12 boxes high. And inside each box were 10 more boxes high. Six boxes wide, four boxes deep. My whole life had been preparing me for this moment. I had planned in my little head how I was going to eat as many cookies as I could and I had 17 days to do it. I thought long and hard about this, people. We had an alarm system on our house. So every time you opened a door or window, it would beep, letting, letting you know a door or window had been opened. And my mother could hear that beep like a hawk. So I had to figure out exactly when the beep happened so that I could somehow muffle it when I was gonna sneak into the garage to eat the cookies. I'd spent the better part of that day opening and closing the garage door over and over again. My mother almost beat the shit out of me. But I figured out that if you just opened the doorknob, the beep didn't happen until the seal was broken between the frame and the door. So I would open the doorknob and then just (coughs) (coughs) You couldn't just cough once. No one coughs just once. You have to remember to trail off the cough. I would sneak down the stairs very ninja-like while everyone was asleep. And then I would just rest the door against the latch so that it wouldn't beep again. (laughs) I turned the lights in the garage on their dimmest setting. Romantic. (laughs) And I would make my way past the cars, around the bicycles, where the cookies were. Armed with my library card, which I used to slit open the box, I pulled from the bottom, replaced at the top. I would get the box, again, slitting it open with my library card. Pull it out, very gingerly opening the cellophane so as not to tear it. I would then eat every single cookie in the box. Lick my finger and get out the crumbs so that the package was completely empty. Then I'd whip out my glue stick I was only 10, ma'am, but I was reading at a sixth grade level. I 
glued the cellophane shut, put more glue on the flap of the package, and put the empty box back into the bigger box. Because, you see, my story was going to be, if I was caught, they sent us empty boxes. <laughs> Things go wrong at factories. I snuck down and ate cookies every single night for 17 days. It wasn't even enjoyable at the end. You know how freaking thirsty you get? Cookie after cookie after cookie, and you couldn't just eat a few. The whole box had to go. <laughs> One night, I couldn't take it anymore. On my way back up the stairs, I stopped in the kitchen and started chugging milk like it was my fucking job. <laughs> my dad came down and caught me chugging milk. What's wrong, he asked. I had, I had a coughing spell. I don't know if you heard <laughs> me coughing, but I'm, I think I'm okay now. And I went to bed. And on the 18th day, the day that the cookies are to be... <laughs> my mother calls me into the garage. And I can tell this isn't a pep sales talk. <laughs> Stephanie is mad. <laughs> she calls me by my full name. Jennifer Lee Cobra, get your fat little ass in here. Come here. Come here. I want you to stand right here. Come here. I want you to stand right here. Come here. I'm not going to hurt you. Come here. Child, did you eat 144 boxes of cookies? Did you? Is that what you did? Don't you lie to me. I don't know what you're talking about. What do you, what do you mean? The, the, the boxes are sealed. How, how could I have eaten 144 boxes of cookies? And then she held up my library card. <laughs> that apparently in my cookie drunkenness, <laughs> I had left inside the last box of cookies. <laughs> I took a licking for every one of those cookies. <laughs> I'll tell you what, I realized who the real victims were in this story. It's those 144 people in Memphis, Tennessee who never got their cookies. All they wanted 
was deliciousness. They waited and they waited and that's all they wanted. And I hope that one day I'm rich and famous enough to put all those 144 people on a bus and drive them to that Girl Scout cookie factory in the sky. Salvation and Samoas for all. What did I tell you? Did I speak the truth? We'd love and thanks to Jen Cooper and all of our amazing Snap Live storytellers. Most of all, thanks to you, Snap listeners. You keep the Snap train running. You're the reason we're able to tell stories week after week, year after year. Thank you. See? What did I tell you? Fraggle Rock and Girl Scout Cookies in the same episode. Be the most interesting person you know. Subscribe to the Snap Judgment Podcast because story adventures await. Even better, represent your crew with the Snap Judgment t-shirt and watch the bullies run away in terror. And do you know who I'm especially intensely cosmically grateful for? I make fun of his haircut. It's true. But I'm thankful for the Uber producer, Mark Ristich. And for Anna Sussman, for Nancy Lopez, for Pat Vecini Miller, Renzo Gorio, Shana Sheely. So grateful for Tao DeCott, for Flo Wiley, John Facile, Marissa Dodge, and for Regina Beriaco, David Exame, Bo Walsh, and Annie Nguyen. Now, you may have gleaned that this is not the news. No way is this the news. In fact, you could live through a year when government confirmation of UFOs flying around with unexplained technology through the air and the seas. A year where this is not even one of the top stories. Think about that. You could do all of that. And you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is PR.